Today we're going to continue our series on money, um, God, money, and human flourishing. And we're going to be looking a little bit at that passage from uh, Malachi on tithing. And we're going to kind of zoom the lens out from there because this question of tithing is complicated. Um, It's complicated insofar as it doesn't really occur in the New Testament as a commandment. It's referenced a couple of times. And so we need to be careful how we talk about this and how we deal with it. And I hope that as we go through the scriptures and consider them together that God will bring illumination to us and uh, renew us in the way that we think about the money that he gives us. So first of all, uh, what is tithing? The word tithe just kind of means tenth. Like they kind of sound similar and for good reason. They're derived from the same word. Um, And so in the Old Testament, the first 10% of the income produce that God would give me would be his. It would be declared holy to the Lord. So it wasn't actually mine. And, and that, uh, observing that law was a way that God helped me understand, would have helped me understand, that none of this is mine. God's giving me everything. Everything belongs to him and he's sharing his resources with me and he's training my heart to recognize this by declaring that first 10% Holy. So if I have some, and holy is a word that we can understand to mean set apart for someone else. It doesn't belong to us. Um, So what do we do with something that we have in our hands, that we have in our house, that we have in our bank account that doesn't belong to us? I think that normally we would want to get that thing to the person it belongs to, right? Mark Twain doesn't necessarily agree. He said one time, this is one of my favorite Mark Twain quotes of many. He said, um, there are two types of fools in the world, them that loans books out and those that gives books back. (laughs) So according to his logic, if, if we borrowed this book from someone, we wouldn't give it back. But according to the scriptures, um, the, the thing that we have in our possession that belongs to God is not su- supposed to be something that we hang on to. If it's set apart for someone else, then we yield it to them. And that's why in the Old Testament, we don't hear the word give connected to the tithe. The people of Israel weren't giving tithes to God. They were bringing their tithes to God. They were paying their tithes to God. And tithing existed in the Old Testament prior to the law, but then God formalized it when he gave the law to Moses. So there's a few interesting things here to think about. That the grace of God in the Old Testament was like a scaffolding or like those stakes that you might put on either side of a tree when you plant a brand new tree in your yard. The law existed close to the people of God, but it wasn't inside of them. It was outside of them to reveal the way that they should grow and to help them grow into that way. That's a really good way to think about the law, and that's corroborated by Paul later in the Old Testament or in the New Testament when he's talking about how the law functions to bring us a certain stretch of the way. 
So it's revealing God's nature and it's training God's people to grow into him and it's teaching them week to week, month to month, harvest to harvest with regard to the tithe that God is giving me everything and, and this part belongs to him. And by giving him this 10%, it reminds me that all of it is his and that I belong to him. I'm a sheep in his hand. I'm part of his household. I'm part of his creation. In fact, all of creation belongs to God. The oxygen that I breathe, the trees and the minerals, the fish of the sea and the cattle on a thousand hills, that nothing exists around me that God did not create. And he sustains all of it. He clothes the lilies of the field. He feeds the birds of the air. He holds all things together, we learn later, by the power of his word. This principle of tithing, this law of tithing, was there to help God's people recognize all of this, that God shares his creation with us, and he's constantly breathing his life into us and sustaining us by it. It's the same for us today, those things. Our hearts are beating right now. Your lungs are working right now. Every day, this is amazing, every day 330 billion cells in your body reproduce. 330 billion. In 80 to 100 days, 30 or, or, yeah, 30 trillion cells reproduce. That's as many cells as are in your whole body. Doesn't mean that all of them reproduced in that time, but, but I think like every eight years, everything in our body is made new again. We don't try to do that. We're not working on that. We're not, no one's here trying to like concentrate on that. Like, man, I gotta, maybe I could just like zero in on that wrinkle on my hand and reproduce some cells there. The fact that God made us and he's holding us together is really important to God. He wants us to remember that. He wants us to be identifying ourselves not as self-sufficient creatures, not as outfending for ourselves. He wants us as a father to identify as people he made, who he loves and who he's taking care of. And it's so easy for us to forget that, especially when the pressures of life come. And we feel like orphans, or we feel like we're outfending for ourselves. We feel like maybe the world is bent against us. There are seasons in our lives when we feel that way. God has graciously, from the beginning, created systems, almost like these arteries, if you think about that, like three main arteries that he gives throughout his word that attach us to him. The bodies that he gave us, there's a lot that he says about how we use them. The time that he gives us, there's a lot that he says about that. And the resources, the money that he gives us. There's a lot that he says about that. If you think about those three things as arteries that God has made and, and forged to connect you to him, a lot of the laws and instructions have to do with one of those three things. And tithing is among them. So tithing wasn't simply a tax that God imposed on Israel because he needed the money. God didn't need to do that. The one who parted the Red Sea wasn't like scrounging around in his pockets for change. He didn't need their cash. God wanted their attachment. He wanted them to love him with their whole heart and their whole mind. And this is one of the ways that he keeps that artery supple. 
It was used for the advancement of ministry, but more so, I think, it's about this story of the Bible where God is moving in among us and wants us to connect to him and wants to connect to us. It's about worship. It's about who we belong to. So now we come to this more complicated question of how should we handle tithing today? I, on one hand, the New Testament never commands tithing, but on the other hand, the New Testament has a lot to say about money and about giving, free will offerings, which we'll hear about next week, and about idolatry. I don't feel free, I feel almost free, but I don't feel quite free to say, if you're not tithing 10%, you're stealing from God. In my heart of hearts, I think that that's true. Um, but, but Article 20 of the 39 Articles of Our Faith says that the, the authority of the church doesn't extend beyond something that's not explicit in Scripture. And so to me, there's a warning track here because Paul never says, hey, Macedonian church, you're not tithing. Um, so I don't feel like that's the move to make. But I think that there's another way that we can look at this that brings us to a similar and even a greater conviction. I think that, that by fulfilling the law, as we see, we'll see in a moment in our gospel reading, that in fulfilling the law, Jesus moves us above, not below, the baseline of 10%. The story of God with us in the whole Bible, it charts God moving ever closer to us, never further away. There's never a time when God moves further away. There's never a time when God's mercy or his grace recedes or diminishes. It's like a dimmer switch that's always getting brighter and brighter and brighter as God moves closer and closer and closer. In the Old Testament, as we considered with the law and, and how it's like a scaffolding or like those stakes on the saplings that you've seen or that you have in your yard... God was nearby, but he was an outside God. He was the God that, that dwelled in the tabernacle. And even if you could get close to the tabernacle and even into the, the, the outer court or the inner court of the tabernacle, there's no way you're getting through that veil. God was out there. God was out there in a pillar of fire and in a pillar of cloud. He was nearby by his grace. Always, by his grace, he was close to his people and he wanted his people to come regularly to him, but he was out there. In Christ, we see in the new covenant, as the writer of Hebrews says, we receive grace instead of grace. It's not that there wasn't grace in the Old Testament, but this is just a new mind-blowing kind of grace where God moves into us. God makes his dwelling place in us. So from Adam and Eve to Abraham to Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and the people of Israel, through every one of his prophets, finally through the new covenant in Jesus, God is always moving closer and closer with his grace. And the veil being torn from top to bottom, that one that separated everyone from God, punctuates the words that Jesus spoke the night before in the upper room that by his own body and blood, he will forge a new covenant and the Holy Spirit will move his laws from out there to in here. Another way we've heard the new covenant described is transforming our hearts of stone into hearts of flesh, or that God will write his law onto our hearts, not just on some tablets that are in 
the tabernacle in the Ark of the Covenant, but that somehow God with his hand is going to inscribe these laws onto our very hearts. That doesn't sound like withdrawing. It sounds like moving closer. And that's what we see when Jesus opens his mouth and teaches his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus says that he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. What happens when God, who wrote the law, moves into you and into me and writes that law on our hearts? What happens? Well, we don't have to guess. Jesus graciously He builds this out and he illustrates it over and over again. First, though, he says this kind of jarring thing, which maybe it was jarring to you when you heard it this morning, that that your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees if you're going to enter the kingdom of heaven. I used to read that and think I immediately flipped it to justification. I just made this quick move like, well, that's impossible And it's not about being better than somebody else. So it must just be like fast forward to the end of the story where Jesus dies on the cross and the veil gets torn and there's a math problem and somehow I get justified in it and boom, it's done. Um, That's the answer in the back of the book. And I think that that's true. I mean, that all happens. But I don't think that's what's happening here. I think that as Jesus is teaching the Sermon on the Mount, as he's opening his mouth and telling you the Beatitudes, and as he's saying to you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. I think when he's saying that, he's actually getting out his quill, and he's doing something on your heart. He's beginning to do something on your heart, as in real time, as the kingdom of God is in our midst and he's speaking and he's dwelling among us and he's talking to us, I think in this sermon, he's doing something to enliven us and to awaken in us something greater as he takes up shop there, as he makes his dwelling place inside of you. These Pharisees were tithing a tenth of their spice rack, like... They had like all this money and maybe one of them was, you know, they had whatever income. But it's Jesus says that you tie the tenth of your mint and dill and cumin. But you're neglecting some of these other things that I actually care more about than your spice rack. I wish that you had done these really important things without neglecting those things. Yeah, those are important. Great. Thank you. But I really wish that you had focused on this. Jesus takes this law and in real time writes it onto our heart. So he follows these arteries of attachment through the Sermon on the Mount. He follows them upstream to help us pull out blockages and to expand them, to expand these arteries for an even greater attachment to God and a greater animation by God as Jesus moves in and starts to take over our hearts. Think about this. So he, just kind of quickly, he goes through, um, he talks about murder, and he talks about um, adultery, he talks about a a divorce, he talks about oaths, he talks about retaliation, he talks about how to love our enemies, he talks about giving to the needy, 
in every one of those examples, all those illustrations, they follow this pattern. You've heard it said, but I tell you. So you've heard it said, but now let me get out my quill and make some amendments here. I'm going to change this. I'm not going to take it away, but I'm going to expand it. The grace of God is always expanding. It's always getting closer. It's always getting bigger. It's always getting brighter. And he says, you've heard it said, don't commit murder. But I tell you, and if you're, I'm, as I move into your heart, I'm even going to sensitize you to anger. Like, congratulations to me that I, I have five children. I didn't murder any of them this week. <laughs> Zero. Big week. But man, like Jesus moving in here, it's a different game, isn't it? When did I raise my voice? When did I roll my eyes? When did I turn away so that they wouldn't see me roll my eyes? He says, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I tell you. And then he talks about lust. And just how we look at people and how we objectify people and how we are selfish with our eyes and with our bodies. He talks about divorce. He talks about oaths. You've heard it said, don't make this kind of oath or that kind of oath. Don't swear against this piece of property or that holy thing. But then he like, gets all the way upstream to arrogance that, man, there's no way I can even make my hair black or white or stay in. That I don't have any collateral on this planet. That's what Jesus is saying. You don't have any collateral. You have nothing to swear by. Just align yourself with the fact that I made you and I sustain you and you, I own you and I provide for you. You don't have to swear. Just say yes or no. That's all you have to do. That's all you really can do. Jesus in real time is writing the law onto our hearts and as he's saying these things, the Holy Spirit is moving in to occupy parts of our hearts that up to this point, we're just governed by tips of icebergs. And now through Jesus' illumination and his proximity, and as he moves in, we can see everything below the waterline. And he's helping us to yield more and more of ourselves to him. So the faulty logic, if we come through this and, and, we, and we start talking about tithing, I think it would be a mistake for me to say, I'm really getting a handle on my anger, thanks be to God. But I occasionally do murder people. But I'm free from that. I don't, I don't need to worry about the law anymore. I just need to worry about whether I'm doing well with anger. I don't stare at people I shouldn't stare at in the grocery store anymore. I'm really getting a handle on my lust. Praise God. Thanks be to God. But I've but I do feel free to commit adultery because I'm free. Because God set me free. I'm, I'm not under the law anymore. I'm under grace. That would be faulty logic. And I think if you're just going to walk away from tithing like that, that that's wrong. That you need to think about how are you making that move. God set me free. So now this is all mine. It's not him, his anymore. It's He's not providing it for me, and I'm not responsible to, to, to give him a portion that he's always asked for as a way to tether my heart to him. 
I think I, I recommend that you think about your money and that first 10% as a way to keep an artery to God open, as a way to continually sensitize yourself to the fact that he gave you everything and he wants to sustain you. And he wants you to know that he's the one sustaining you. I think that tithing is still a baseline, just like murder and adultery and oaths and an eye for an eye. And that the New Testament expands us past that. It sets us free to not think about it that way anymore. I don't go around thinking about who I'm going to murder next or who I need to avoid murdering. I go around thinking about anger. And by, and by being sensitized to that, what happened to murder? By thinking about lust and, and trying to give that to God and, and fight for purity in my thoughts and in my meditations, what happened to adultery? It just drifts away, that God is drawing me into something deeper. Tithing is still a primary way that we can guard our attachment to God as our provider and avoid the pitfall of thinking that our money is ours and we are fending for ourselves. The fact that we belong to God is even more pronounced today for you and for me than for the very people who passed through the Red Sea. You haven't passed through the Red Sea. You passed through the veil of the temple that was torn from top to bottom to be brought into the immediate presence of God where you stand blameless with great joy. He did that for you. He moved you there. He brought you there. Paul says elsewhere in Ephesians that, that, that you're a new creation created in Christ Jesus to do the good works that he prepared for you to do. The people of Israel were created one time. You've been created two times. You were made but then you were made new. You were seated at the right hand of God in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The book of Hebrews makes this argument over and over again. It points back to the Old Testament and says, that was amazing grace. And this, by contrast in Christ, is mind-blowing grace. We still belong to God in him, as Paul says, and he's preaching in Athens, we live and move and have our being. God's gracious desire from the beginning and today with you and with me is to personally provide life for us and life to the fullest. So I'm not going to stand here and say, if you're not tithing to the local church, you're stealing from God one to one. But I caution you and I, and I exhort you in the Lord to look at 10% as just a baseline. It, it, I don't think that that has gone away or been repealed any more than those other things that God gave us or that Jesus highlights. It's a way for us to obey the rest of the Sermon on the Mount in the last chapter when he's talking about money and he's driving it all, away from the tithe all the way up to being anxious. Don't be anxious for what you're going to eat or what you're going to wear. Be anxious for the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these other things will be added to you. I put to you that the baseline of 
is a great way to get in that direction and to stay in that direction and to keep moving forward, as Wilson will talk to us about next week on free will offerings, to move forward into even greater giving than that. Tithing was always used for the ministry of the gospel and for the advancement of the kingdom, and it still is in the local church. And it would be wonderful if God used all of our resources to continue to expand the ministry of incarnation and to church planting and to all the things that God has put before us to do. And as you pray about this and consider it, I pray that God will reinvigorate your appreciation for his grace that he's given us these very specific handholds, these very specific arteries that connect us to him and that we would be good stewards of those and follow him in those. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.